brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Softweb Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Softrep.com, on time, on target. Ian Scotto here. I'm here with the very sophisticated-looking Sean Spoons today. How are you doing, man? Because I know you're in town basically helping out Brandon with his upcoming book. With some things like that. I rented this suit. There's a place just up the street. (laughs) Switch out of shorts and a T-shirt. It's hot in New York today, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. But great to see you. Good to see you. Just to uh, give some background before Sean explains his background, which I feel like if you've been with the site for a long time and been reading the articles, you're already familiar with Scott and, and what he does. Um, Scott. I just said Scott. Why am I say I'm losing my mind here. Sean. Sean Spoots. Why am I saying Scott? Um, <laughs> it'll, help them, it'll help them be familiar with me if they know my name. Yeah, and, and also I've, I've known you for such a long time. But anyway, um, before we get in, into your background, um, yeah, you're you're in town promoting what is going to be an upcoming book from Brandon. That's right. Um, Brandon's, uh, Brandon's new book, Mastering Fear, Navy SEALs Guide, uh, breaks out on August seventh. Uh, I'm excited for it. Yeah, it's a great read, by the way. And if you if you're a parent with children, this is a book that I think resonates a lot. I was a father of three myself. Um, kids are always worried about going forward in life, the fear of failure, and how to master their own fears. They do a lot of avoiding behaviors. And Brandon's book's about an entirely you know, different way of dealing with fear. Uh, and I think if you're a parent with kids in that high school age, there's a lot of stuff in here that would be useful to your kids. Yeah, absolutely. So be on the lookout for that. Off the top of your head, do you remember the release date? Uh, it would be August 7th. August 7th. But yeah. you could pre-order now, of course. Right, right. Everything, every place you would normally go and buy a book, uh, Mastering Fear Navy SEAL Guide is available. It's uh, Target and, and Walmart and Books A Million, yep. Barnes & Noble. I'm sure I'm forgetting like three or four. Um, it's also, of course, available on Amazon for pre-order. And if of you course. pre-order, if you pre-order, there's some stuff that, that comes from the publisher that's really nice, including a uh, Mastering Fear window decal, a patch, and uh, an athletic shirt. So, and, and I believe, you know, if you give him proof of purchase, he said that he'll sign it. He's done that before, so I, I believe that that's the case still. Yeah, he's always been great about that. If, if somebody yeah. sends a book to him with a proof of purchase, he'll he'll personalize it and mail it back. To be fair, I even remember someone sending it way past the date they were supposed to. Right. And he was like, all right, fine. Right. <laughs> I'll sign this. Right. Um, but so basically, um, before we get into Sean's background, as I was saying, a, a few weeks back, Sean hit me up and was like, you know, I don't know if you remember the, the article that I wrote on the Malaysian flight, and uh, which was, of course, Malaysian flight 370. And from what you were telling me, there's going to be a government r- a release by the Malaysian government on July 30th, a new report on that. And I, w- I figured, yeah, when Jack is away, which is going to be for the you know next month and a half, I was like, let's revisit this. And what better time than now to talk about this? Well, it's been three years. and uh, Hard to believe. The government's going to throw out the report on the 30th. This is a very strange 
kind of actually crash. been four years. Has March, it been four March eighth, twenty fourteen. It's been that long. Yeah. Uh, and this is really kind of a strange incident because there's so many countries involved in it. Because the you know passengers were American and Chinese and Australian and Malaysian and they were from all over the world. So everybody's government wanted to get involved in this thing. And uh, it's almost been a mess from the start. If anybody can, if you go back and refresh your memory on uh, how the Malaysian government handled this in the beginning, they would they would release a piece of information, and the next day release a new piece of information that contradicted the one they released yesterday. And they did this for like two weeks, and it was one of the most confusing things you've ever seen in your entire life. And trying to keep up with things, and um, they've got nowhere, you know, been nowhere closer to where they were four years ago in terms of figuring out what what the hell happened to the airplanes. So. Yeah, and I, I want to get into every single one of these theories, um, and I know you, you were extremely well-researched on your indestructible laptop. Yeah, I want uh, to try and keep it to the top 20 conspiracy theories about yeah. what actually happened. But um, before we do, I'd love for you to tell everybody your background. As I said, I feel like if people have been with the site for a while, you were really reading Brandon's work before you started you know, doing things with us prior to before myself even coming on board, and your former Navy as well that you could talk about. Yeah, I'm, I, uh, I started reading Brandon's work way, way back on another military website, <laughs> and uh, he had put out something saying, look, I'm going to start my own thing. If anybody would like to you know, be a part of you know, initial readership, you know, send me an email. So I did, a bunch, bunch of other people. So I was there when Software Up launched on the you know, first day, first post, and that was in the... Dodge City Saloon days before there was a paywall. Mm-hmm. So when Software would do a story that involved, say, Jesse Ventura or Alex Jones or anything like that, we'd get mobbed by all these troll fans that would then, you know, go after the site and, you know, go after <laughs> Brandon Jack Murphy. And, you know, just kind of like the Internet villagers with the pitchforks and the torches threatening to burn the place down. So I was a part of those early days of trying to you know, suppress that nonsense. And uh, things just went from there. My, my military experience is, you know, it's not legendary um, compared to the guys that are my my friends and, and acquaintances and peers, but I was a aviation anti-submarine warfare operator, search and rescue crewman on the old SH-2F C-Sprite platform. I was with HSL-36 in Mayport. Uh, and, and you're still, you know, going back to battling these people on the site, you're still like the guy who combats the trolls. That's your thing. You know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> since the paywall, it's, I'm really out of that job. So, but even on Twitter, I think. Yeah, on Twitter, people, yeah, some of that. I, I do have like a, a small clientele that comes to me and says, hey, I need some help. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know what you would call it, like being a tweet slinger or something like that. But, yeah. But uh, that's a tactic on Twitter is, is you know, somebody will say something you don't like, and instead of actually addressing what they actually say, you go after them personally. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, there's always a... It, and what I find with most of these people is always the same group. It's not like people like Brennan Webb or Jack Murphy have all new enemies. It's the same old guys doing the same old thing that they have been doing for years. And all they need is an opportunity... Uh, a tweet, a word, an event for them to just jump out of the woodwork again and do the whole thing. They're, Jack and Brandon and other guys live rent-free in these people's heads um, 24-7, seven days a week. So that's that's just the way it is. Yeah, I, I would agree as someone who's been here for like quite a decent amount of time. I see the exact same thing you do. So 
you know, occasionally you will write something, as you did with this Malaysia flight article, but you want to just mm-hmm. explain, like, in what capacity that you're a part of. Yeah, well, four years ago when the, when the original conspiracy theory started to come out, they were bordering on the complete ridiculous. Uh, was yeah. it General McInerney? Was that the one? He was yeah. Saying? You know what? I, but, but I just mean, like, your capacity with Hurricane and, you know, working with everybody. Uh, oh, I don't know if you want to explain. Like, uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Today, that's not the, <laughs> that's not the main subject. Yeah, no, I, but... It, but we all, you know, work together on sure. certain projects here and right. there, and um, you've helped us out a lot, actually, with some, like, charitable events recently and things yeah. like that. Yeah, we actually responded. If uh, if you're out there listening, uh, go to software website. Uh, we're trying to raise some money to help the Michael uh, Murphy Memorial Scholarship oh, Foundation. Man. Jeez, uh, the, the, what happened on Long Island. You know, the outpouring of that was tremendous. I mean, I called, the, uh, I called ABC2 right after this thing happened and said, look, you know, we'd like to help. And they said, we've we've already got the you know repairs covered in 10 minutes after the broadcast and then uh, the governor steps up and says oh we're going to you know we're going to spend state state money to fix that thing so we still want to do something for them I mean, outside just the destruction of that memorial which was done by a kid it's, it's not a 14 year old kid yeah it's a, you know people online saying oh this is you know politically motivated it's like you know what just hold on for a second and wait cuz this may not be that this may just be somebody doing something dumb. Sure enough, it's some 14-year-old kid who just did something really stupid, brought the hate of the world down on him, all the things you could bust up. But the uh, Memorial Scholarship Foundation really does some great work, and we're working with them on a raffle. We've got some great gear that's been donated by our Crate Club subsidiary, about $500 worth of stuff. Um, The Memorial Foundation kicked in a couple of things, too. They wanted to give us everything. They're like, no, no, no. We'll just take a couple of patches. We want to do the rest of this for you. So if you're if, if you can check out the site look for the raffle uh, there's a discount on on uh, uh, tickets by volume and we're trying to raise about five thousand dollars for them um, they handed out 16 scholarships last year full scholarships to college so it's a great organization and it's a great cause and we really like to try and help the smaller charities I mean the big ones they uh, they don't need our help you yeah know, multi-million dollar fundraising operations but for some of these smaller charities we'd like to try and highlight their work and and hopefully send some help to them. So. I think the family even responded with all these, like, you know, send this kid to prison for life or something. Mm-hmm. What they responded, from what I saw, was pretty responsible, they where were. they were like, maybe you should volunteer to VA. Yeah. And if, if he did have to volunteer to VA for a long period of time, I think he'd really regret doing what he did. And I think the actually Marcus Luttrell said given to me for the summer. I think that's where regret would really start. Yeah. You know, that kid would come back with calluses on his nose. You know, he'd be <laughs> worked to death. But uh, I, I'm still kind of, the family's actually apparently very forgiving uh, of the kid. He, Sounds he's like 14. It. Yeah. You know, so that's not, that's not the age where you really know your stuff. And as far as I know, the kid isn't like a, you know, permanent ne'er-do-well with a, you know, lengthy criminal record. Yeah. Like but that. I, you do think, like, you know, maybe the parents didn't raise this kid the right way because if you were, you would know that, you know, you don't deface a memorial like that and, and that you should have respect for our military, especially Gold Star families. Well, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, if you're not going to respect dead people, you're not going to have much respect for live people either. And, um, you know, Michael Murphy was a legitimate American hero. So, uh, then again, this is a kid. So he's got uh, his whole life in front of him. And uh, I'm, I'm sure he's going to be living with this for the rest of his life. But it's not the same thing as somebody who's a, you know, a hater of our veterans or a hater of, of uh, Lieutenant Murphy in person doing something like this. This was a kid who did, and kids do impulsive things. Yeah. So I hope his parents get straight, get him straightened out. Um, actually, I, if I was, if I was the father, he'd be at, he'd be at Marcus Latrell's ranch right now. Yeah. 
go, well, you're going with him for the summer. You know? Yeah. I don't want to look at you for a couple of months either. <laughs> I get it, man. Well, all right. So getting into the topic at hand here, uh, Malaysia Flight 370, which took place on March 8th, 2014, you wrote an article. When did you, I'm just, I had it up when you wrote your actual article was, because I want to make sure I have the dates right here. It was here. about 10 days after. You wrote an article on March 22nd. Yeah. So yeah. a few days after that. Right. And it, it seemed like from what you told me, you got a little bit of backlash and it turned out that everything you were saying was really debunking these kooky conspiracy theories, frankly, that came out. Some of them were nuts. I mean, some of the major networks were putting people on television saying that this airplane disappeared in a black hole or it had been t- seized by aliens mm-hmm. or uh, let's see, what was the what was the other one? There was another one about remote hijacking that somebody was able to hack the airplane by, by remote control and fly it to some secret base somewhere. So this is what the news coverage was like on this for, for three, four days afterward. None of it was useful. I mean, it, it, it was wishcraft kind of stuff on national television. So I reached out to some people I know, one of whom was an airline pilot. Uh, one was a flight engineer on 747s and had been a senior master sergeant in the Air Force uh, on C-141 Starlifters. A guy I know at NASA, that's a, that's a math whiz, that actually literally is a NASA rocket scientist, works on, works on rocket fuel formulas and things like that. And in talking to them about this, we were like, none of this, none of this makes sense. Actually, the entire scenario of, of the plane disappearing didn't make any sense. So we looked at the airplane and what it did from a system standpoint. So when an airplane experiences an emergency, there are systems on the aircraft that do certain things that give off indications that ended up debunking most of these conspiracy theories almost on their own. <clears throat> now, it was General McInerney, I think, that was saying that the uh, plane had gone to Pakistan. Pakistan. Yeah, and that's, by the way, so that's General McInerney, um, former United States Air Force general. If you guys remember, um, who are fans of the site, Jack Murphy wrote an article about McInerney a while back, kind yeah, of exposing they're his friends, ties. They're pals, yeah. They're, <laughs> and they're this guy is um, pretty... Uh, pretty much known for getting very conspiratorial about yeah. things. And this was a prime example of right. that. Oh, absolutely. Um, With no no information, just a complete concocted idea that this plane was in Pakistan. And that's it. Yeah, that it was going to be flown to Pakistan, um, passengers offloaded, presumably all taken and shot without anybody, you know, objecting or getting upset. And then the airplane was going to be loaded with explosives and then come back and hit something, which was great. It would be a fun novel, but there's no basis in fact in that. So our piece basically looked at these theories and then said, look, you know, this is impossible. It's not just unlikely, it's impossible. Because like with McInerney's theory, two things. In order for the plane to make it to Pakistan, it had to have, uh, it have to be um, use all of its fuel. In order for it to get there on the fuel it carried, it had to fly at cruising altitude and speed. Well, at cruising altitude and speed, it would have been visible on radar. And, yet we, and we know that it wasn't mm-hmm. on radar. Nobody tracked that airplane into Pakistan. And the other thing is, is that airplanes and, and runways have to match. Runways have a pavement classification rating, and the aircraft has a weight rating. So it, you can't just land a, a 777, which is like a 740, a jumbo jet-sized airplane, on any runway in the country. It has to be a specially built runway to handle those kind of weight loads. Or... You set down, leave the landing gear basically where you put down on the runway, and the rest of the airplane keeps going. It just digs in and rips the gear off, and you have a, a you know, 10 seconds from disaster final mm-hmm. reel. 
So that was my contention about the Pakistan thing. Well, okay, if it went to Pakistan, which runway did it land on? Because there's only a couple in Pakistan that can take that, and they're civilian runways. So who landed this Malaysian airline that everybody's looking for on a civil, you know, in Karachi without anybody seeing it? And what did they do with it? And we have satellites parked over Pakistan. They're not orbiting. They're parked, looking down, because the borders between India, Pakistan, and China are a little contentious. And they're always, you know, pointing rockets and artillery at one another. So we're watching what's going on there all the time. That airliner would be visible. You're not going to miss that airplane sitting on a runway somewhere. Uh, and the hangars, to, to stick them in, they're not, they're not widely available. You put an airplane in a hangar to fix it, and you wall it back out again. You don't store airplanes in hangars. They sit outside. Same, things were, same claims were made about the airplane being stowed in uh, Diego Garcia. And again, I said, fine. Where did they put it? There's no hangar big enough for that on the island. And that island is a jointly administered military base by the United States, Great Britain, New Zealand, and Australia. It's all military personnel. There's no civilians. So... Nobody talks. This Malaysian airliner just lands there, and they sh- take all the passengers and shoot them. Hard to believe. And everybody's yeah. just going to keep their mouth shut, right? No, it doesn't work that way. If you want a conspiracy to work, the fewer people involved in it, the better. Sure. Once you get past three or four people, somebody gets, somebody starts to talk. So all these things that were out there were failed to take into account what the actual airplane probably did. Our theory, which was done by eliminating the things that just could not have happened to the airplane, like, like uh, being abducted by space aliens, things like that. As far as we know, the space aliens don't have that technology yet to abduct airline planes. They haven't done it before. But um, looking at the thing, we, we saw some things that were very glaring. One, we believe that the pilot and the co-pilot probably acted together because um, while the airplane was flying, the co-pilot was on the radios with the operating talking to the tower. Now, while he was talking to the tower, generally in airlines, the non-flying pilot is the one that operates the radios. He's talking to the to the towers of handling air traffic control. And while he was doing that, we know that the plane was changing course and taking on a new flight plan, which means the pilot had to program that in. And a co-pilot would have said, Skipper, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Well, he didn't. He just proceeded as everything was normal. And the pilot would have, the co-pilot would have noticed when he turned off the ACAR systems, and he would have noticed when he turned off the radios, and he would have noticed when he turned off. Everything that would have helped unlocate the plane, all those things would have been done out of the normal, outside checklists, uh, and the co-pilot would have said, hey, what are you doing? Stop. Now, we thought about whether he might have locked the co-pilot out of the aircraft, but, you know, there is a fire axe on that plane. So it's not as if you couldn't get past that door again if you had to. Plus, there's also a VHF radio that's down in the uh, stewardess sort of, you know, kitchen compartment there. There's another radio. You could have gone down there, turned that thing on, and squawked that they were in trouble, you know, that the pilot had taken over the plane. So... We, we believe, uh, we also believe looking at some of the stuff that they claim the airplane did, it was impossible. At the very edge of the radar track out of Kuala Lumpur, the airplane was said to have made this crazy turn and this descent of like 12,000 feet in a few seconds. We don't believe that's, that's what actually happened. What we believe is that that was at the very edge of the radar range. It's a radar anomaly where mm-hmm. the return signal is weak because it's at the very outside edge of the radar detection range, and that can give you a, a strange signal. Planes can look and do strange sure. things. We do believe the plane did descend. We don't think it, it couldn't descend 12,000 feet in a few seconds. It, it just could not. It's not capable of doing it. Uh, do we think the plane turned north into the, into the Gulf of Siam and then crossed ac- across the narrow isthmus of, uh, of Malaysia and uh, is it Myanmar, I think? Uh, they actually did detect the plane doing that at a low altitude and a low speed. But they didn't know it was an airliner because the radar they were using just gave them a target, but it didn't give them a size of the aircraft. It's not a skin-painting radar that looks at the whole shape. It can tell you, okay, that's an airliner. 
Uh, and then we think it flew out, it flew out into the Indian Ocean between a pair of lanes that are incoming and outbound airline lanes, There's several hundred miles between them. And this is inbound and outbound air traffic, air traffic from the Middle East, from Europe, uh, Madagascar, and all that that flies into Asia. And we think if he was sitting out there in between those, flying, circling low at a low altitude, nobody would even notice him out there. He wouldn't be invisible on radar. Yeah. And nobody's going to see him because nobody flies between those two lanes typically. Nobody flies cross-traffic between that. It's all north-south stuff, and you, they don't want you crossing between those lines. And there's nobody else. There's no reason really for anybody else to be out there mm-hmm. for any other reason. Uh, the Australians didn't see it. They should have. They had a tremendous early warning airborne radar, or early warning ground and airborne radar system that was in place. Uh, but apparently it had been turned off that night. They were doing some maintenance on uh, on the system on Christmas Island. That should have seen the airplane, and it didn't. So we think what his plans were was, um, and this is all about Anwar, this is all about politics in Malaysia. You had a Islamist fundamentalist government known to be significantly corrupt, a lot of opposition to that government uh, by the more secularized forces. The opposition leader had just been sentenced uh, and trumped up charges on like child molestation. They were going to throw him in prison for the rest of his life. And the pilot, Muhammad Shah, was not a Muslim, even though they were trying to portray him originally as a, as a terrorist. And, and the name Muhammad, yes. you typically think Muslim. Well, well, it's the most common name, apparently, in the world is Muhammad. Um, and I guess it doesn't always mean what we think it means automatically. Maybe they had high hopes he'd be a Muslim and he's disappointed yeah. his family. But our read on it, looking at him personally, is we think he may have been an atheist. He was certainly a secularist. I mean, on his Muslim family, maybe. I mean, just yeah, when you I'm hear sure. the name Muhammad. Oh yeah, no doubt. I'm sure. Yeah. He had a, I'm sure his family was Muslim. But you know, he had Richard Dawkins videos on his YouTube channel. Who was you know famous atheist and ideological atheist. Although, then again, look at what they found on Osama's laptop. Disney movies. Yeah, a lot of stuff that you yeah. wouldn't typically he think was, in Islamic he a, fundamentalists. He was a big a fan, fan of, of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, apparently. <laughs> so. Um, no, but Disney movies are pretty benign. I think if you were, you know, Muslim, you could watch most Disney movies without getting too upset. Yeah, I'm just thinking, like, is it possible he was researching atheist theories? I mean, I get what you're saying, though. This guy was not an Islamic fundamentalist. Like, that wasn't what the motivation we was. We didn't find any evidence that he was. We didn't yeah. find any screeds, you know, denouncing America or, you know, denouncing Israel or... Yeah, we didn't find anything like that. What we did find was a guy that was, you know, wearing democracy is dead shirts after the opposition party got kind of gypped in an election. We know that the guy was uh, a big, you know, loved to cook. He was a big foodie. We know he built model airplanes and flew them around. He loved aviation. He was a senior pilot from Malaysian Airlines. There was nothing in his background to suggest that he was, you know, an Islamic fundamentalist. In fact, everything kind of pointed away from that to us. Especially the stuff about atheism and pro-democracy, that just doesn't generally lend itself towards yeah. Islamic extremism. So we think what he did, and we think he acted you know, in concert with this other guy in a patriotic sense in the opposition party, but I don't think the opposition party actually knew. What about the people who were on that plane, the passengers? Because there's been a lot of theories about that. Uh, I think the one that makes the most sense, I mean, I've heard some crazy stuff that, you know, they were trying to cover up organ harvesting and some other nonsense like that. But I think the real key in the passengers is that the Chinese pa- Chinese passengers that were aboard were not tourists. They were businessmen, party members in China, important people. They all vanished. There was like 126 of them, I think, to, you know, were on that plane. Vanished without a trace. China is a great big country. You know, it has business interests and ties in, in with Malaysia manufacturing and cell phones, electronics, all kinds of things. 
And the thing with Asia is about face. You know, it's a real embarrassing thing to have 126 Chinese nationals all just die on an airline flight. Yeah. And it's not like it's not like the West where we just step up and go, yep, it happened, we're very sorry. With them, there's a sort of avoidance of, of trying to maintain, you know, face, as they call it. So we think some of what Malaysia did was animated by not wanting to look incompetent in front of China, who was asking some very, very pointed questions about where did our people go? Because it wasn't tourists on vacation. It was business people. It was Exactly, which people. is why people think there's some political motivation for crashing this. Well, I think if, if I was Shaw, what I think Shaw did, I think Shaw basically figured out some way to communicate with the government after he took the plane, saying, I want the charges vacated against, uh, against Anwar, or I'm going to take this plane and crash it into the sea. You know, remember, they didn't report the plane missing for four hours after it was gone. Four hours. That's a long time. And why was it four hours? Why did they wait that long? I mean, within an hour, they knew the plane was missing. Of course. It was supposed to be heading for Peking. Now it's gone. Nobody knows where it is. I think in those four hours, what you had was the government and Shaw negotiating. And I think they tried to string Shaw out, maybe bluff him, and he didn't, they didn't get away with it. He figured out he was getting played. And they were trying to find the airplane while he was you know, while he was negotiating with them. And I actually don't think Anwar, who is the opposition, who's now in charge of the country, by the way, the Islamist government was kicked out. I don't think they knew anything about it either, because when they asked Anwar about it, do you know this guy? He goes, no, I don't know. No, I've never heard of him. You don't know Muhammad Shah? Nope. You know, no, don't. He's like married to one of your relatives. Donated to your campaign. There's pictures of you guys together. Oh, that Muhammad Shah. <laughs> right, right. The relative of my sister, the donates to my campaign. <laughs> I know him. Sure, I know who he is. I know who he is. So at first they denied knowing. I mean, I, that's why I think they didn't know. It was like, we didn't know. Uh, and abandoned the guy. But I think what Shaw was going to do, if he was successful, was fly the plane to Australia because there was a, there's a runway there that's a joint Qantas uh, Royal, Air, uh, Royal Australian Air Force Base there that can take that runway, can take that aircraft as weight. And he would have turned himself in for air piracy. But he would have been in prison in Australia, not in Malaysia. So if he was able to get those charges against Shah vacated, I mean Anwar vacated, then I think that was the plan. Go to Australia, turn myself in, liberate my country, be a hero. We still don't know this for certain, but there were reports at the time that Shah's family left the country a week to 10 days before his flight and went Mm. to Australia. Very suspicious. Actually, we have a hard time even locking that down. Because then it was, oh, they didn't leave the country, or they didn't go to Australia. There's all these things. It's almost like the Malaysian government did not want to confirm anything that made it look as if Shaw did this for a political reason. Uh, We also don't believe the plane ditched in the water because uh, the evidence that they found of the aircraft, almost none, very much suggests a high-speed impact in the water versus versus a ditching. If they had ditched that airplane in the water, they would have found it floating. The plane would have been out of fuel. It is full of watertight compartments. Your fuel tank spaces, all that stuff, your flight control services, most of those are sealed. You have a passenger cabin that's closed up. There's an awful lot of stuff in there to keep that airplane floating. It would have, if pieces that had broken off would have broken off in whole sections, wing, tail, things like that. A lot of that stuff would, would not have sunk. It would have stayed on the surface. You would have had a wide debris field with bags and seats and cushions and all kinds of stuff. They didn't find any of that. Do you think the four-hour wait time is a big factor in why we've found nothing? You know, because at a certain amount of time, pieces are going to scatter about and sink. And It's very possible. You know, the Indian Ocean is 
unspeakably huge. Exactly. The, the Australians call it the Great Western Sea. Like, they look at it, and they, they don't even know what to make of it. Most of it is completely unexplored. It is unbelievably deep water in most places in the ocean. Mile deep depths are nothing. Remember, they were originally thinking they were looking in, in an ocean of about 5,000 feet and saying, oh, we're going to have a hard time. Well, it's a hard time to get a submersible 5,000 feet down. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a lot of technology to get a camera that can look, stay together at 5,000 feet without being crushed by, by the pressure depths. So uh, it's very difficult to find anything that far out there in the middle of the ocean. There's a lot of, there's a lot of ocean out there. And they, they were flying at 5,000 feet doing their air search. And I've done air searches, and you do those on a helicopter at under 1,000 feet because at 5,000 feet, a man from a mile away is a speck on the water. Just look line of sight a mile away and see if you can see a human being. I mean, that's very hard to make yeah. out. And if you're talking about water with white caps and all that, you're not going to see, uh, you'd have to have very big debris. That's why they were flying at that altitude, believing the complaint of dish. They thought they were going to see whole wing sections, tail sections, or the entire airplane still floating in the water, uh, mostly sunk, but still afloat. Uh, and they didn't find anything. And all these years later, yeah. nothing. Well, and this goes back to what I was saying before about the, the immense size. I mean, we knew where the Titanic sunk. Mm -hmm. They had the coordinates. It still took 70 years to find the ship. 70 years. And they just found an airplane in the woods in Michigan that's been missing 20 years. Wow. It's 17 miles away from the airport it was trying to land at. And it had been missing for 20 years and nobody could find it. This is in Michigan. This isn't the Yukon Territory. This is, you know, vast, untrackless, you know, yeah. trackless lands. This is in Michigan. And this plane was gone for 20 years, and nobody knew what happened to the husband and wife that were flying it. So we can lose an airplane just about anywhere. Part of what you were saying to me prior to us recording was that the reason we don't know anything from the government end is they don't want us to know anything. You know, if you look at this like I have, there's this sort of pattern of the Malaysian government literally getting in their own way. Literally getting in their own way. And as far as they're concerned right now, the investigation is over. So then why, why is there going to be a new report released on the 30th then? Whoa. Yeah. Do you suspect it's going to be nothing? I think the report's going to be, we can't find the pen. We have no idea where to look. And I think and it just makes them look, but we're trying. <laughs> like, <laughs> and we're done looking. Yeah. You know, the Malaysians spent about $100 million on a search that cost about $180 million, and the Chinese and the Australians and the U.S., we all kind of chipped in to try and help here. None of it has worked. I mean, you could keep looking for the plane, but how much money do you spend? Because you're looking for it on something that's roughly the size of the Atlantic Ocean. You have no idea where the thing went down. And I don't think they're ever going to find the airplane intact if that's what they're looking for. We think the plane was all but vaporized on impact. What they have found so far that they're claiming belongs to the airplane is very consistent with a high-speed impact in the water. Now, the, the only good thing you can really say about this is that the passengers aboard never suffered a bit. They would have been snuffed out in an instant. They would never have known even what happened to them. So they didn't suffer. There's no reason in my mind that if Shaw really was bent on this, that he would ditch the plane in the water and let everybody drown, because that's literally what you'd be talking about. You know what's the cool thing about this piece, which, by the way, if you guys want to read it, it's up. It's called, All Right, Good Night. Does Malaysia Want to Know What Happened to Flight MH370, which will be re-released um, soon as well. But it's up on the site right now. If you right. just want to Google that, you'll see it come up written by Sean, of course, in um, March of 2014. So you wrote this just a couple of weeks after. A few days. A few days. Kind and and then it went up clock. maybe a little bit after that yeah. for the site. Yeah. And the two things that are remarkable, for one, this, the, 
as you were telling me, the piece was absolutely huge in terms of the amount of hits that it got. The only thing that really overshadowed it was, and you know, understandably so, Jack's piece about what happened to Bin Laden's body. That was an amazing story, by the way. That was a great show. Incredible story. Had it have not been for that, this would have been by far the biggest piece on the site. But the other thing that really stands out is that it's one of those things where almost like when Brandon and Jack wrote Benghazi, the definitive report, people were saying, ah, it's a little bit early, but it it still holds up today. You wrote this piece four years ago. Some people were a little skeptical of of, uh, debunking these conspiracy theories. And four years later, everything that you wrote holds up. So far, there hasn't been much to contradict. In fact, there's been some things that kind of uh, tangentially confirmed it. There was a story about two years after we wrote the piece that was a former Malaysian minister, a member of their parliament, who literally said that the government was covering the whole thing up and that it was part of a, an attempted coup. I was like, wow. And I didn't know if that meant he'd read my piece or if my, or if my piece had, had been... And I, it's possible. Know, it's possible. Um, and then the story disappeared. It went away. Um, and it, but I think if you, if you try to... Instead of trying to come up with a theory of your own, which was what all these other people did. We just let what happened to the airplane create the theory for us. Uh, for example, one of the reasons we believe the plane crashed at a high rate of speed is because none of the emergency locator transponders or emergency locator beacons went off. And if the plane had ditched in the water, those would have activated. There's three of them. There's one in a life raft. There's one in the fuselage up in the upper section mid- midway through the aircraft. And there's one up high in the tail. And they're run by a battery. And they have decelerometers in them. So if the airplane hits the water and slows down at a rapid speed, like a like a water landing would do, those beacons go off automatically. Boop, 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 give a you know, give a direction and, and you know, longitude and latitude and location to a satellite. They only had one brief signal signal from those uh, from what we think was one of those beacons. But they never told us what the frequency was, because that would have told us, because there's two frequencies that they run on. And they wouldn't they never released the frequency. That it was that they picked it up on, which would have told us it's an emergency locator beacon. So I'm hoping the report will contain some of this information, which would have probably confirmed what we said uh, that that it, it hit the water at high rate speed. The um, uh, the debris was you know vaporized most of it. Anything that was big enough not to be destroyed by the uh, by the impact with the water would have sank into the ocean and wouldn't have floated. But anything like you know seats or bags or or chairs, or it would have been just pulverized. And the pieces they found of the plane are no bigger than a surfboard, really. And you wouldn't have seen those from 5,000 feet. They're just too, you know, you're too high. Uh, but that's also consistent with a high-speed crash. The flapperon that they recovered off the plane, I really wanted to see good pictures of that flapperon because that could have told us whether that flapperon was removed from the aircraft by ditching or by a high-speed impact, because we would have been able to look at the fitting and tell whether it was stressed to the front or to the rear. So if it had been stressed to the front, it would suggest that it had been pulled backwards, which would suggest a ditching. And if it was stressed to the rear, then it would tell us that that flapperon was driven forward by an impact. But they haven't released any information on the flapperon. You see? Mm-hmm. So those are some things that we, we could probably figure out about this if they would just be more forthcoming with some of the information. Instead, it's like a big vacuum. They say they found a piece of debris, but then you know, you're not allowed to see anything about how it's been analyzed or, or any good close pictures of it or any of these other things. And it's been very frustrating to to the other governments involved, the Chinese, the United States, the Australians. Um, you, know, you literally had a private company out of Australia say, look, we'll, we'll look for free. And if we don't find anything, you don't pay us. 
And they did. They looked. Spent months. Couldn't find a thing. Mm. Well, I think that's a function of the exasperation of trying to deal with this government. The Malaysians were like, no, we're not doing it. We'll, we'll do it for free if we have to. Just pay us if we find something. We'll, we'll go and do it. I mean, you would think the Malaysians would be like, okay, here's $20 million. Here's $5 million. Go and do what you can, you can do. And they don't want to do that because I don't think they want to know. I think they already know. And I, and I think they Which just don't want to know. a scary thought. Yeah, well, um, in the con- you know, when you think about all the millions of dollars in trade and tourism and all that flows through that region, uh, this is a very bad thing. It's an it's a ugly thing for Malaysia, which have, has had a history of sectarian violence, um, th- to have this sort of thing blow up again on them. Uh, the government in uh, the Islamist government in Malaysia was widely known to be corrupt. I mean, you had guys making a hundred thousand dollars, and their wives have these four hundred thousand dollar purses that are, you know, super expensive. I, I don't know; it's a big thing over in Asia. I don't know if it's caught on over here in New York yet. But it's four hundred thousand. It's a four hundred thousand. I think bag. it's all. You know, it's like when I see these women walking around with shoes that are like a thousand dollars. I'm like, wow, that's insane. But then when I right. hear that, I'm like, all right, yeah. that's a whole new level. The knockoff in this bag is a hundred thousand dollars. Right? So, <laughs> so it's a four hundred thousand dollar bag. And there's been several of these Malaysian officials' wives have seen in public carrying them. We're like, what the hell? These guys make out hundred grand yeah. a year. And that was one of the things that got the Islamist government kind of pushed out of power and Anwar in power. Now, if you're Anwar, are you now going to go out and, you know, dig into this thing and, and, and blow this whole thing up? Now you've gotten the Islamists out. Uh, you're the minority power now in power. Are you going to now jump in front of this thing and say uh, the Islamist government screwed this whole thing up and covered it up? And they're implicated in it as well, although I don't think knowingly. I honestly think the... Uh, Anwar and his party were, had no idea this thing was going on and probably freaked out when they got the notice that, you know, Muhammad was going to fix this whole thing. Like, oh, my God, there's going to be a huge crackdown on us now. Yeah. So they disowned the guy, totally disowned the guy. And they uh, just wanted to go away. They wanted to go away. And, the, and you know what? In all honesty, it has on some level. I feel like the public's attention span is so short that's why when you told me you wanted to come on and talk about the Malaysian flight, right. I, I was like, yeah, it's cool because no one is really talking about this, and it's such an important part of recent history. I feel like no matter what age uh, of a listener you are, because with this show we have guys in high school who are looking to join the military. We have veterans of Vietnam and, and even previous wars who listen to the show regularly and write us. Right. Everybody remembers this moment no right. matter what age. and. And it's gone pretty much like out of the mainstream. It's not something we talk about anymore. Yeah, 20 years ago, uh, Leonard Nimoy would have been narrating an In Search of episode about this thing, about a three-part series. But I, I think Unsolved the thing Mysteries would be Unsolved cool. Mysteries, right, Robert Stack? I think, you'd have the, I think the thing about the story that's really interesting is that most airline crashes, most airline crashes, are mechanical or pilot error that result in these, in these crashes. In this case, though, you have a situation where I think the, the government directly participated in the events that led up to the crash. Uh, I think they tried to bluff their way past Shaw, and he didn't go for it. They couldn't find the airplane because he did a really good job hiding it. Nobody knew where to look for it. And like I said, the Australians should have seen the plane. If they had their their uh, air search, air defense radar on, they would have seen that airplane. That, that radar could have picked up a cruise missile inbound, which has a cross-signature, like a you know, has an oncoming signature that much bigger than a garbage can. And you and you wonder, you know, what the relationship was to the pilot doing this because, you know, what do you need to do? We already know that, like, suicide missions and kamikaze stuff yeah. back, of course, from World War II, but then Islamic terrorists who do these suicide, you know, bombings in places like Israel, how do you convince a pilot to go on a suicide mission? 
I don't think that's what he intended to do. Okay. I really don't. I think um, I, I think he went out there and despaired after he realized he was you know getting jerked around, and they didn't buy it. You know, what made those guys make that last stand at the Alamo? But what made them do it at Wake Island? What makes any of these lines? They're, they're never planned out from start to finish to say, okay, we're going to you know, stay here and, and die to the last man. I don't think the Spartans expected all to die at Thermopylae. It just worked out that way. You know, events kept pushing that, that line further and further to the point where your options are lesser and lesser. Um, and I, like I said, I think Shaw kept enough fuel to get himself to Australia. And then when he realized that, that the government was not going to clear Anwar of the charges and restore him to his position as a minority leader, kept his promise, which is a terrible thing. But uh, I, think, I think he was dedicated. I think he really meant it. We just can't find anything else that makes sense. It certainly isn't alien abductions or, or uh, Oregon harvesting, Oregon harvesting cover-ups or flying to packs. I mean, the new one is a, is that there's some guys that believe that the plane was taken to an island off Madagascar. Yeah, I was going to get into that because that was another one. You were saying Peter McMahon. If you want to talk about his uh, background, yeah, he's a he's kind of like a civilian researcher, and he spends a lot of time pouring. These are people actually looking for the airliner, thinking they're going to see it in the water. So they're pouring over Google Maps inch by inch, zooming in, zooming out, trying to find what they think is going to be the image of this plane just below the surface, forgetting, of course, that in some places it's 10,000 feet deep. And they think because the, the, some of the wreckage is washed, washed up off of Madagascar Island, I'm trying to remember the name of the islet that they call it, but it's, um, it's not Montserrat. What am I, what's, the, what's the word on the island I'm thinking of? I'd have to look. I don't know if you want to pull it up. Anyway, I'm, I'm definitely not a geographer. It's, a, it's an island off Madagascar because they're saying that that's where the, the debris is washed up. And I think that's really just a function of the ocean currents three, four years later of this debris making yeah, its way there. And this is based off Google Maps. I mean, it's really Maps not Google the way Maps. to. So they think the plane went somewhere out there off, off of Madagascar. And that doesn't make any sense again because you're going out to the extreme range of the aircraft in order for the plane to reach that range with the fuel it had on board because it wasn't carrying a full load. That airplane would have carried what it needed to get to China plus 15 to 20% over that in case they had to hold or in case they had a weather, you know, weather necessitated a, a hold on landing or divert or anything like that. Um, in order for that plane to get all the way to Madagascar, it would have flown at cruising range and cruising speed or cruising altitude and speed, which means it would have been seen on radar by Diego Garcia. We had to go right past it. So we can't just pretend like this air, an airplane can go flying around and nobody can, no one's going to see it. There's systems that are out there Huge air search radar in Diego Garcia. Another one, several stations in Australia watching the Indian Ocean that should have seen the plane. The question is, why didn't they? Well, the only reason they wouldn't in the case of the Australians is if the plane was, or the radar was off. They turned the thing off because they were doing maintenance on it. And um, the fact that the plane was very low and outside the radar range of Diego Garcia. Because you can't have it both ways. You can't say, oh, yeah, it flew right across Diego Garcia and they magically didn't see it. No, they would have seen it. There's guys, very sharp guys, military guys, watching that panel in that console. And any plane zooming around out there without, without being identified would have a jet sent to go look at it. Now, Shaw could have disguised what his airplane was doing from simple, from simple contact radar, which is just going to give you the, you know, the kind of classic movie where you see the screen, you just give a blip. Mm -hmm. If he flew low and he, sl and he flew slow, he would disguise himself as sort of like an inter-island transport plane. Well, he's under 5,000 feet. He's still on 200 knots. He's probably, a, you know, he's probably in the Cherokee Arrow 4 place going from here to there. He could look like he was a small passenger plane. Now, when you're talking about sophisticated air defense search radars, those are called skin painters. So they look at 
the tail, the nib. Yeah. They can give a shape, and the software system in the radar tells the operator, this is an airliner, it's this kind of an airplane. Even if you turn off your transponders and turn, turn off everything you got, that skin painting radar will still classify the target and tell you what it is. It's a cruise missile. It's a, you know, it's a fighter plane, maybe a MiG-21, because it, it's so good that it can, it can read the, uh, the image. It can turn the radar, uh, return into an image that software can then analyze and say this. And the Australians bragged that their air defense radar was sophisticated enough to see a Cessna 172 taking off from a runway in East Timor. On the ground, they could see it taking off on their radar. So it should have seen that plane that didn't see it. So that was off. But these folks who want to claim that it flew off Madagascar Island have to get around the confounders, which is, okay, well, it had to fly through the air search pattern of Diego Garcia, and it had to do it at high altitude and high speed. It would have been seen, and it wasn't. So that tends to make that theory irrelevant, because it, it, the, the things that have to, it has to pass in order to be relevant or, or credible don't pass. I also just think, you know, as practically looking at it on Google Maps, anything could be any like you're zooming in on areas is really not sufficient evidence of, of parts of a well, plane debris from four years ago and they have found almost nothing from this airplane just except as you said a, a couple of pieces that we know nothing about that we know very little about so that's like i said very consistent with a plane hitting the water at high risk but why aren't these pieces being sent to a lab for analysis like it's they are but uh, that we're not in charge of the investigation so yeah. we offered you know we said hey we've got people who are experts in this stuff We'll send a whole team over and they're like, no, thank you. We have our own expert. And and then another, um, I mean, there's many theories in this article. I suggest you guys all check it out. It's all right, good night. Does Malaysia want to know what happened to flight MH370, written by Sean Spoons, of course. Um, but then you also mentioned Captain Lindbergh to me and this theory of faulty oxygen bottles. Yeah, uh, that, Captain Lindbergh is, a, is an airline pilot. So that he's got 17,000 flight hours. I'm sure he's a very competent pilot. I'm sure he's an expert in not crashing airplanes. And great name for a pilot. Yes, uh, but, <laughs> but his expertise seems to be in not having a mishap in an aircraft. It's a, it's a different kind of thing. I think we were talking about this before the show. Yes, yes. You know, crash accident investigations are great if you actually have a crash scene to look at. So what we don't have right now is an actual crash scene. So it's very difficult for anyone to... to uh, say accurately what happened when you have so little physical evidence to, to actually go by. And we know almost nothing about what happened to that airplane after uh, the, Malaysian Air, the Malaysian Air Force caught sight of it for a few moments as it passed across the peninsula out in the Indian Ocean. But we, we know almost nothing after that about what happened to that airplane. So his theory is that the oxygen bottles failed spontaneously, asphyxiated the pilots, the crew, and the passengers, and that the plane continued to fly on autopilot uh, and I don't think he really, I don't know if he specified where the plane went down. But the problem with that is, is that if you have a cabin depressurization without any oxygen, the oxygen mass for the passengers drop down automatically, and I think they have 15 minutes of air just, just there. And the pilots have bottles in the cabin that gives them 30 minutes of air, oxygen. Their mass dropped down automatically. It's not, can't be turned off. It can't be, you can't pull the plug on it or trip on it while you're getting the coffee and unplug the thing. It's, it's an automatic system. So 15 minutes is plenty of time for the pilots to get that plane down under 10,000 feet where passengers can simply breathe cabin air, again, where the oxygen content is sufficient for them to breathe. So if, it, if, the, pad, if the oxygen system failed on the aircraft, he'd get warning alarms, the oxygen mask will drop automatically. It's not like he has to, you know, in the old movies, everything's on manual. No, poof, they come off automatically. 
and the pilot has 30 minutes to get from 29,000 feet, which was cruising altitude, 29,33, to get down under 10,000. They can do that in a couple of minutes. They don't need a half an hour to do it. So, again, we get back to the thing where somebody proposes a theory about what went wrong, but then we have to look at what would the airplane's response be to the catastrophic failure that, that somebody's imagining. I mean, I've heard stuff that said the entire electrical system failed on the aircraft all at once. Okay, well, how? How does miles of wiring on this airplane, What? how does it all just stop all at one time? And there's systems... Yeah, there. is there a documented... No, uh, you know, yeah, no evidence of this ever happening. Yeah, so. yeah, and that's what we mean about wishcraft. Is is that I've got to come up with a theory. So here's my theory. Yeah, you know, I actually had a conversation with somebody about this one time. They asked me very sincerely. So what do you think actually happened? I kind of read your thing. I want to ask you a question. I'm like, sure. So we talked about it for 15, 20 minutes, and then he finally said, "That's all really good, but I still think it was aliens." <laughs> are there are there any theor- other theories you want to go through? Because this piece lays them all out. But are there any others that we haven't covered yet that you feel? No, not to okay. But I would say this. these are all. I mean, as you said, the cool thing about it are, is the theories that you mentioned here are from other than McInerney, you know, who who does have a, uh, I'd say, a good military background. But his, his what he's doing now with the companies that he's working for, as Jack has detailed before, and his theories he's laid on Fox News make me very skeptical of the guy. Right. But the other people that you've laid out, these are not, uh, the, you know, this is not Alex Jones. No. Yeah. These are what you would think are pretty reputable guys, but you, mm-hmm. you kind of debunk these pretty logically. So Yeah, well, and I think that one of the things we have to remember about these kinds of incidences is we have to kind of try and look at them reasonably and understand that almost everything is action and reaction. And most of these conspiracy theories are out there never take into account the reaction of, of the claims that they're making. Like yeah. they're, they're, airplanes like this have systems and subsystems and backup systems. And you, when I started looking at these things, and I didn't do this alone, mind you. I had three other people working with me on this. Which is cool. That's the way to do it. Yeah. I was like, what do you think of this? When, here's what they're claiming. And, and what would happen if this happened? What would happen? If, and we always talked about it in terms of what the aircraft would do. What would the aircraft's response be to this? And, and you know, why did we have this radar anomaly? You know, why did we have this ridiculous altitude and turn thing that showed? Well, that's at the end of the radar range. It's an, it's an anomaly. It's not, it's not what the plane did. It's just that's what the radar read from that extreme range. The return was weak, and that's how it registered on the system. But the plane could not have possibly descended 10,000 feet in a couple of seconds in one piece. It couldn't fall from the sky that fast. We're talking, like, meteor speeds yeah. for that to happen. So you have to kind of be skeptical, and, and I'm a skeptic. I'm somebody who always goes, eh, let me look first. And this is such an unusual incident because, like I said before, it involves a government, I think, that does not want anyone to know the truth. And they're actually going to be helped in that by the fact that if the plane did hit at a high rate of speed, there's almost no likelihood they're ever going to recover the black boxes or any significant piece of that airplane. Someday, some oil exploration company down there uh, you know, citing for a new drilling rig someplace is going to stumble across one of those Rolls-Royce engines and say, holy Christ, look at this. We found an old Rolls-Royce engine down here. And then they're going to send stuff in and find a much wider debris field. Because just remember, if, if you crash an airplane at a high rate of speed in waters that are eight, ten thousand 10,000 feet, that debris is going to come down from here and it's going to spread out like a, you know, almost like a teepee yeah. across the bottom over miles and miles of, of the you know, bottom of that ocean. 
And as you said, they have four hours for this thing to spread before anyone comes in to start searching. Yeah, well, I don't think the plane actually, uh, you know, crashed within, you know, an hour of taking off. I think the flight duration that we imagined on that plane was about about seven and a half to eight eight hours max in, max endurance. We think Shaw flew very low, very slow, which to, which was to play out his fuel, to give him as much time in the air as he possibly could and conserve fuel. So he had to do that low and slow. Or he can do it high and fast because you get less wind resistance and mm-hmm. the plane goes really quick. Because you remember, airlines are, airliners are designed to uh, function at an ideal speed and an ideal altitude for maximum fuel efficiency, which is where the airline makes its money is on saving gas. So it, it, get up to this altitude, get the speed dialed in exactly right, exactly this altitude, and then you're going to save the company money while we deliver passengers to their destination. So when you bring it down low, you have to factor that in and say, okay, well, if I'm going to do this and I want my fuel to, to hold out, how fast can I go? Instead of 600 miles an hour, 580 or 550, it's going to have to be about 240. I'm going to have to 15-degree flaps, and you know, I'm going to have to just be in this gentle circling turn uh, and be under 2,000 feet and just you know, see if I can just you know, run my fuel, have my fuel last that long. So he had seven or eight hours, we think, in the air. Uh, before you know, he was out of gas and said out options and said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep my promise, which we think is the one he made, and put the plane into the sea. They, they believe that, that Shaw attended the sentencing hearing for Anwar the day of the flight, and then there was a report that they put out, and then they reeled it back in that, that he had taken a, a telephone call in the cockpit on a burner phone. Mm. And then, oh, no, no, well, that didn't happen. <laughs> so this is the thing that the Malaysian government did. They put information out. Everybody go, what? That means this? And they go, next day, oh, no, that never happened. This happened instead. They kept teasing out things and contradicting themselves. It was a, if, you, if you follow the story from the beginning, it, it's ridiculous. But the, um, the crash is significant, we think, is because... We think it was a politically motivated crime. We think the government actually botched it. It's not your typical accident. That's a that's a matter of uh, airframe failure or pilot error. This is a this is this is a more political kind of thing, and it didn't involve terrorism. I mean, it's an act of air piracy. I don't I don't think, you know, Shaw could have turned the thing back around and just flown it right into what is it, the Petronas Tower in in, in Singapore, that gigantic, the biggest building in the world. It's okay. right there. If he was a ter- if he was a terrorist, he could have f- turned the plane around, come back, and just clobbered that giant, huge, enormous skyscraper. Or he could have come crashed on Kuala Lumpur. Mm. He could have flown it to Peking and just you know barreled it into the party headquarters. He could have he had an airplane full of fuel, full of passengers. He could have gone anywhere and done something with it. So it's safe to say, though, like July thirtieth, when this report hold, uh, comes out, you're not holding your breath for any new information. <sighs> Uh, no, I'm actually going to be interested to see the reaction of the other governments that were involved in this, the, the Chinese, the Americans, the Australians. Uh, I'll be interested to see what they think of this report, our own investigators. But, you know, you have a very hard time rebutting them if they don't give you information. Yeah. You know, if they won't agree. let you see the parts that have, that have been recovered, you have a very hard time, you know, rebutting it. And it, it's almost like what they have done sort of leads the, leads the theory that they don't want anyone to know what happened. That's what it sounds like to me. So as we're wrapping up this whole discussion here, and this is great because I, I think that this is the first time I'm hearing about this in depth. I remember when I was working over at SiriusXM at the time, they did have a um, show and a station, I think, that was devoted to this crash. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, for a really limited time because of the fact that it was just in the headlines oh, and everything. Yeah. But I remember General McInerney being one of the guests. And, you know, if you're listening in, you're like, oh, this guy's former general, former Air Force general. He probably knows his stuff. And I'm glad that, like, there's someone like you who came out here and said, like, not so quick. This doesn't really hold the water. Um, but I'm wondering, 
what, you know, in particular got you so fascinated with this to really research it and come out with an article like this with people that you were working with? And, well, by, and by the way, did did you talk to Brandon at all? Because, I mean, he's a pilot. and Yeah, I said, look, I'm actually going to write up I'll write up a piece on this. And do you think it would be something that software would be interesting? He goes, absolutely. I mean, I want to read it first. Yeah. He goes, but, yeah, absolutely. He says, uh, who are you working on it with? And I said, well, I've got a buddy that's a pilot at Southwest, and i got a buddy that's a... Uh, f- uh, senior flight engineer for 20 years, a guy that's flown those routes and knows the air traffic control uh, procedures and all the other things. And I said, I'm working with a with a guy you and I both know is a, is a NASA rocket scientist. He's helping us with the math because we're doing a bunch of math calculations on this. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, absolutely. I want to see it. So I ran the piece through him. And I think it was Jack who looked at it as well. And they both said, yeah, let's do it. That's and, cool. Um, I, I think the story captivated so many people because they were hoping they'd find them alive. We, we were all hoping they would find all the passengers alive. But I was I was almost convinced from the get go that they never would. It just I just didn't think, I didn't feel like it would they were going to find them all out at sea somewhere, and that's because there were no emergency. The key to this thing, in very very large part to me, was the fact that they got nothing off the emergency locator beacons. That should have happened. Those locator beacons should have activated in a plane that dished in the water. It's almost impossible to unactivate them. They don't run on the electrical system. They have their own batteries. They're highly placed in the aircraft in shielded positions so that they, you know, they aren't destroyed easily or instantly in a, in a ditching. So that was what they should have been hearing. And when I found out they were using the, you know, the handshake pings from the ACAR system, which is almost like a cellular, it's a satellite, the ACARS is like a satellite uh, activated text messaging system. It's used by the airline to talk to its pilots and say, okay, listen, when you get to, you know, Kuala Lumpur, see the gate agent about your wife. She has a message for you. It's, you know, it's that kind of stuff. Um, they were using the handshake ping from that to try and track this aircraft, which was almost impossible. So we knew that there were things going on on the airplane that we believe had involved both the pilot and the co-pilot uh, at the same time working together. Not in, not in, not to commit an act of terrorism against a Western nation, but we think it was political. We think the only answers left after we eliminated all the obvious nonsense uh, was was something more political uh, about the push and pull of of Malaysian politics. So. But Sofrep, to its credit, has broken some tremendously big stories. That we have the Bin Laden body, as you know, yes. you said, came out at around the same time. And what happened in Benghazi, and then what happened in uh, what really happened in Benghazi, what really happened. Um, uh, uh, with the gate guards that were murdered in Amman, Jordan. I'm, I'm trying to remember their names. Just escape me because I'm sitting here in front of this microphone. Uh, and, of course, they took their heat over what they did in Niger, but that, that story to me was absolutely needed to be told. Mm-hmm. You know, the government did not tell the families the truth about what was going on. And, and um, after the after Safra had stripped out all that nonsense that, that the Daesh people had put on that, Niger ambush. We didn't put that out. The government stopped. The, we're not going to send a report on that. We're going to have to delay it because they had to rewrite it. Yep. And uh, you know, we're going to have a look at that policy about guys wearing GoPro cameras out in the field without authorization. Yeah. Oh, we're going to have a look at that. Yeah. So the government changed a bunch of things to to you know, try and try and minimize the chances of something like that happening in Nigeria. Which is something yeah. that, like, I, I think people who aren't like you, who haven't been here from the very beginning, or that really understand the site, don't get. They want us to be like these other military sites that it's a very, you know, and all these guys are patriots, but a pro-patriotic, pro-America message. And, you know, if there's anything that's negative, don't put it out there. But whether it's, you know, rapes in the army and uh, or the molestation going on at the VA, Jack's whole policy, and I feel like Brandon as well, is like, we're going to put it out there. 
because oh, it yeah. needs to be exposed. This yeah. needs to see the light because if we don't talk about it, the Army's certainly not going to talk now, about it. Institutions have a tendency to protect themselves. They just do. They have a tendency to protect themselves um, and and hide from you know hide hide the truth from people if it serves to make the agency look bad in some manner or capacity. And I don't think you can have actually agencies that are responsive and clean and functioning properly without the exposure of wrongdoing. Especially you know, SOF doesn't carry like a cover DUIs. You know, they don't run around yeah. trying to find a guy who you know uh, stole a chicken from the grocery store. Nobody, that's not a story. But when you're talking about major, major kind of scandals that involve lying and stealing or murder yeah. or drug running or, you know, those are stories that we should cover yeah, if we as want. As I said, the VA molestation stuff. And, right. and I've said it before on the show. I mean, I could make it as vague as possible. The, the guy that that happened to has been on with us before. He's, yeah. He hasn't come out about it yeah. um, publicly, and maybe at some point he will. But like I've said, this is like a tough dude who's, you know— um, I, like I said, I don't want to uh, get into his background too much, but a former special operations guy. Right. And I think the narrative is when you hear about a guy being molested at the VA or something like, right. oh, why didn't you tell him to back off? It's not always the way that it works. Yeah. And I'm glad that we cover this type of stuff yes. because if it doesn't get out there, no one else is talking about it. There's no accountability. Yeah. And um, we're not going to be a site that just portrays everything in the military in a positive light. And when there is something in a positive light, we, of course, report on that as well and, well, and yeah. talk about it here on the podcast. Software doesn't chase the negative. But, yeah. I, but I do believe uh, if, if you think of these people in special operations forces and the military in general as heroes, then we owe it to the ones who are heroes, who, who uphold the standards, to report on those who do not because they should be weeded out so that the ones you keep are the ones that are really you know, meeting that standard of, of, of integrity and honesty and, and fidelity that we really want from our military people. You have to have that in the military. You have to. They have guns, weapons, enormous amount of power. You have to have responsible, sober, honest you know, people with that kind of power out yeah. there because if you've ever seen militaries that don't have that kind of ethos, uh, you've got people lined up against the wall and shot. So I guess my point is I'm glad my article is in the company of, of those other great pieces that have run. Uh, and and I, I really admire the way, you know, Soft Rep and Jack and, and uh, Brandon just sort of fearlessly say, we're going to report anyway, knowing that they're going to get clobbered, knowing that all of the usual clowns and uh, uh, trolls will jump at them. They don't care. If it's the right thing to do, they're going to do it. Mm-hmm. So I, I admire that. I, I admire that very much in both of them and in Soft Rep itself. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with you. Um so wrapping things up here before we get out, and um, let me just pull this up here. Um, I have a it. cab waiting downstairs. What do you say? So my cab's waiting downstairs. So really, though? It'll just be a few minutes. No. Are you? no. <laughs> um, yeah, I just wanted to pull up our stuff here that we're um, working on because, as I always talk about every show, the, the clubs, what we have – have just been absolutely awesome. You and I just saw Admir, yes. um, who does great work with all of our clubs, whether it's Crate Club or who we're working with, Kuna Dog. Um, and as I always say, there's only one club out there with gear handpicked by special operations military veterans from several branches, and that, of course, is Crate Club. Uh, the future collaboration with NFW Watches, I've seen what that's going to look like, and that's going to be pretty awesome. So if you're a premium tier member, that'll be in the near future. Um, we have different tiers of membership depending on how prepared you want to be. 
And I would always say, you've seen Fork, really go with the premium. I know it's a bit pricier, but when you see like these really cool items that you haven't seen anywhere else, chances are that's not going to be in the standard crate. I mean, it's great stuff in the standard crate, right. but the premium has the stuff that you're like, where did they get this? No, you're right. And I've actually seen the process by which they vet that stuff, which mm-hmm. is really very intricate. I, I, I marvel at how much stuff they reject yeah. by how much they go, yeah, we're not buying this. I mean... You can go online and you can find... So you know what a K-bar is? No. Famous World War II Marine Corps fighting knife. It was the standard okay. Marine Corps. They're very, still a, one of the greatest blades ever made in terms of utility. It's, it's one of those beautiful design knives that um, has been around for a long time because they just work so well. But you can go online and you can find a K-bar for $20 with a leather scabbard and everything. It looks absolutely great. Or you can find a K-bar for 100 $20 or $150. Well, what's the difference between the two? Well, if you're like most people, you don't know the difference between steak knife steel and D2 tool steel. At a crate club, they do. Yeah. So they're looking at both and saying, okay, this one looks great, <laughs> but it won't keep, it'll go dull cutting bananas. This one is made like a hammer. This thing will last 100 years. You can and that's it. why these guys pick stuff. They're like, we would deploy with this. Yeah, and yeah. not everybody gets that. Everybody just, you know, there are some people who think, oh, I'm just going to get a, a whole trunk full of stuff in my no. mailbox. And that's not what you're getting. You're getting gear that's very, very specially selected and picked by people who really know what they're doing. They say, I'll bet my life on this. Yeah. I'll take this into the field with me. We get, we get uh, great feedback, whether it's like the Emerson knives or, yeah. you know, especially for the premium, as I was saying. Um, so you can check that all out. It's at crateclub.us. Once again, that's crateclub.us. For your dog owners, you're going to love this as well. We've just partnered with Kuna. They have a team of trained canine handlers picking out a box for your dog every month of healthy treats and training aids. It's U.S. sourced, all natural. And it not only promotes a healthy diet, but also promotes being active with your dog. So whether we're talking a pit bull, a chihuahua, whatever dog you have, uh, they're going to love it, and you can see that all at kuna.dog. That's kuna.dog. It's efficient for you. Your dog will appreciate it as well, of course, and that's spelled C-U-N-A dot D-O-G. Also, as a reminder for those listening, for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to the Spec Ops channel. And I have to tell you, um, the videos that we've been putting up, if you're watching this on YouTube, have been getting great feedback. Someone commented on the last episode they were like, love all the new stuff, but why can't I find all the inside of the team rooms? That is all at Spec Ops channel. So become right. a member. You could rewatch all of those, plus the um, inside the team room intelligence that we just did. That's uh, going up there right now. I'm going to play. I'm going to tease out some of the best of that soon and play some of that for you guys. Um, so that's our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops Channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. And you can watch all of that content by subscribing to the Spec Ops channel. And that's at specopschannel.com. Take advantage of a limited time offer of 50% off your membership, only $4.99 a month. Check out the app, which was developed by Chris, who does an awesome job. Um, wrapping things up here, as I was saying, uh, you could find Sean on Twitter at Sean underscore Spoons, S-E-A-N 
underscore S-P-O-O-N-T-S. Anything else that you're plugging before we get out of here, other than, as you're saying, the raffle, people got to yeah, check out? Yeah, no, I was going to say, if anybody has any comments they want to address to me, go to go to SoftRep and find the article there and you know hit me up there. If you if you think this is all nonsense, I don't mind hearing that, <laughs> but, but have something to replace it, at least. So, has anybody really and, and had anything to back it up with? Uh no, I mean, like I said, the one person I remember talking to for like half an hour about when I got all done, I thought they really understood. They nodded like they understood. Well, I still think aliens did it. And I was like, okay, you know, it was the aliens, then that's fine. Yeah. So I, I really hope someday they find out what happened. But I, like I said, I've always thought the biggest part of the story was the way internal politics within the country can murk these kinds of investigations. Uh, we've done, we don't have that here in this country. No, we lose an airline and there isn't any consideration about government agencies arguing over who has jurisdiction or we don't want to know what happened because, you know, there were some Canadians on board and it'll make us look bad to Canada. Yeah. You know, we've, we've never really had anything like that in this country. We kind of take for granted the political stability we have here. In spite of all the stuff going on right now, our politics are actually very moderate and stable. It's hard for a lot of people to believe, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. and, and a lot of those people who say, like, look at uh, the things Duterte is saying over in the Philippines. It makes Trump uh, look mild. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, look at what goes on in South America. And yeah. Look at, goes, look, look at what goes on almost anywhere in the world. And we, we certainly have a contentious political field right now, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to lay on either And if people follow you on Twitter, they already know where you stand. You know, I end up more like defending cra- <laughs> against craziness than I actually defend Trump or anything else. Yeah. It just seems that way because, you know, it's it's like we go between, what, is he Hitler today? <laughs> or is he, is he Hitler, literally Hitler, or yeah. is he Putin's stooge? I'm trying to remember, you have to, it's alternating days between one of those. It's yeah. Just, evil genius or complete moron, which is it today? So it's, yep. it's like every... Before you can even talk about a policy, first you have to get past literally Hitler to talk about the policy mm-hmm. uh, differentiation. I hear so much from, uh, you know, actually these past few days, unfortunately, I could get into this off air, but, like, I've I've heard people that'll say, you know, uh, the, the political climate right now, it's just, it, it's so divided, we're so polarized, and then in the same breath, they'll be like, anyone who voted for Trump is a complete moron. Should be in prison. Right. Yeah. And it's like, so could you really complain about the polarization while saying that? Yeah. And the funny thing is, is that I don't, I mean, as somebody who's really honest to God conservative, uh, I don't find Trump to be all that conservative. No, and we've dis- we always discuss this type of stuff. Yeah, this is kind of like this middle of the road sort of. A, he's almost like a libertarian stuff, but he's torquemada yeah. to everybody else. I don't know if I'd call him a libertarian, but I mean because these the tariff talk and stuff like that. He's but. he's for legalizing marijuana. He was pro same sex marriage. I mean, that's those are both third rails in terms of yeah. traditional. I just want to think of the the economic end of uh, the tariff stuff. I get why libertarians are turned off by that. Uh, and, are uh, libertarians all free traders or no traders? What are they, what's the I free trade. I would. Say for the yeah. most part, I mean, the, no at, the, at the but at the uh, but extreme spectrum, you have the people that are you know as they call themselves anarcho-capitalists. Yeah, I don't know what that is. I think it's just uh, capitalism with no oversight. Uh, I don't. I'm not. I don't know how that. that I don't know how that would work. I don't know how that would work. Because if you want capitalism with no oversight, go to China. That's how you end up with like poisoned baby formulas and things like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, no it's, it's interesting to say that because you think communism, but yeah, that, but China's really a communist country. If you look at China 34 years ago versus what they are now, China is more of a crony capitalist kind of authoritarian. Interesting. State. Because th- there's huge wealth in China. There's some very, very rich people in China that are, the government is not uh, is not taking their money away and dispersing it to the peasants. 
uh, it's corny capitalism. Now you, that's where the government picks the businesses that do well, that have favor. It's a partnership between capitalism and the government. We move towards that a little bit ourselves. We should really pull way back from that. Uh, the government should not be as in-depth in business in terms of regulation and control as they are now because then the corporations form lobby groups and lobby the government to get off their back or to or eliminate they, or, their competition. Yeah. Take their yeah, competition. Yeah, where the government picks favorites, as I always bring up for the people who um, on the left, they'll say, oh, there was no corruption in the Obama administration. And you think of Solyndra. How hard they look. Solyndra was a huge one to Giant, me. 500, then, $500 million. And $500 no one even talks about it. And, yeah. you know, because people will make these really vague statements of like, oh, I think we should be funding alternative energy. Yeah, that's great. But, you know, when the government starts picking companies and then you choose right. a failing company, right. you've just wasted the taxpayers' money on something that they'll never well, get if, back. If green energy is so great and it, could, and it really would do great, you wouldn't be able to stop companies from investing in it. Absolutely. You, wouldn't, you couldn't keep them from developing those, those energies if, if they really worked, if they were really efficient in terms of delivering kilowatts to your home. And we don't use petroleum because somebody's uncle owns the oil. We use it because the energy output per gallon is like the highest of anything we could possibly come up with. I mean, you could run cars on on chicken tiers. You just couldn't do it efficiently. Speaking of, of conspiracy theories, you ever see that? Uh, it's like a meme that goes around Facebook. I've seen it so many times or the video of the guy who was running a car purely on H2O on water and then the people saying um, that, that he was killed by the government because they didn't want this getting out. And right. then you do some research on the guy and it turns out that he was he was taking, in my opinion, these pretty stupid investors' money yeah. and, you know, stealing it because – I. You know, it should just be basic knowledge. You can't run a car on water. It doesn't work that way. Fifty years ago, the patent office used to get perpetual motion machines all the time. People are always trying to patent perpetual motion machines. <laughs> so there's actually a thing if you go to file for a patent. There's actually a disclaimer. If you're filing anything that involves perpetual motion, you have to do this because that was like the favorite invention of everyone is to come up with a machine that didn't use any energy and just produced energy. Yeah. And they, none of them work. But they can always find people willing to invest in them. I mean, you probably remember some of the little things that you could put in your air filter that would turn supposedly swirling the air and improving your fuel economy. There's lots of stuff like that people tried to do that have no real harmful effect on your car but don't really do anything to help you. It's or one of my favorites. Energy I think placebo I've, effect or something. Yeah, I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before, and I've gotten some people try to push back on me with this, but do the research. Uh, homeopathic medicine. Most of it does no harm. Most of it does no good. It does nothing. I, I love that speech that um, that guy, uh, James Randi, who goes by The Amazing Randi, mm -hmm. he's done it on TED Talk, I believe, and others, where he takes those calms, homeopathic sleeping pills, drinks the whole bottle on stage, does this all the time, and he's like, why does this have no effect on me? Right. And then he goes into what homeopathic medicine is, which right. is basically a extremely tiny, minute amount of an active ingredient, and right. the rest is basically a sugar pill that you're taking. And, and that's how it gets past the FDA. It has no harmful side effects because yeah. it has no, it's mostly water. Uh, th if it is, is it FDA regulated? Because I know that, um, like, supplements that you'll buy in a vitamin store, like vitamin shot, it's not FDA regulated. And, and Depends on what kind of claims of you make about it. If you yeah, claim that's true. If it, it, it heals anything, helps anything, cures anything, yep. you got to run to the FDA. So what they do is say, oh, this is FDA cleared. Well, basically that's, you know, Food and Drug Administration. So they're presenting it almost as something you eat. It's yeah. not going to poison you doesn't mean it's going to do you any good. But I just saw something not too long that said multivitamins are crap, that they don't do a thing for you. 
I've I heard, know that's I've heard, heresy to yeah, all the listeners out there. Yeah, I've heard conflicting stuff on... I, I think that's one of those things where I... Because I've also seen people say, like, omega-3s. I, I take a multivitamin, so I don't want to think that I've uh, been wasting all my money. You, you pass it. Apparently, you pass it. Most of what you get vitamin-wise, apparently, you get from what you eat. Yeah. The only place where you need to really supplement things is in places where... Uh, for example, if you were someplace you couldn't get any citrus or anything like that, you'd want to probably take a C supplement or something like that. But our diet's enormously varied in this country. People can obtain almost everything they need vitamin-wise from the food they eat. You don't need Although the problem is you have people, a lot of people in this country who are eating like three meals a day at McDonald's. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there's probably vitamin C in tomatoes if they're eating the... Uh, yeah. Switch it I up just wouldn't the, call it balance. Just switch it up to the uh, Big McTasty once in a while. But Even though this is coming from someone who had McDonald's last but, night. But they do you, say but that C, vitamin C and vitamin... B, those are actually have some, you know, if you take those, those actually, you get something from those. You can put the multivitamins, they say you pass most of it, your, your body doesn't even end up using it. Because if you overdo on vitamins, your body excretes them. We don't need all this. It yeah. shovels it out. Um, so when you were a kid, that was a panic. You know, the diets weren't as, weren't as varied uh, 30, 40 years ago when kids were little and there were kids that were anemic. They weren't getting whatever that is, vitamin A. They'd end up a bit anemic and... Uh, they were giving kids supplements and, you know, they fluoridated water and, you know, all these other things. But they were always done for, like, not the majority of the population. They're almost always done for a minority of the population that's deficient in, in certain vitamins or minerals or things like that. But if you just eat a balanced diet, I mean, chances are you're going to be fine with, you know, you're not going to be vitamin deficient in anything. If you just eat a good mix of, you know, fruit and vegetables and meats and stuff like that. So yeah. You should be fine. I mean, you'll know if you're vitamin deficient. Sure. Well, yeah. I think you should get your blood tested regularly. Because yeah. I, I actually did. I was, like, low on vitamin D, started supplementing with it. Because yeah. these winters in New York, which is, you are in sunny Florida. Right, but, right. Which, you know, and then you come here to, like, gloom and doom New York. I'm you this, must be missing it. I'm this tan just walking to my car from the house. <laughs> That's all. You get a tan like this just going to your car. I would love to live in Florida, man. I, I, I'm kind of jealous of you being there. Um, you know, all the, all the different states have their charms. So New York's a really great city. I always yeah. enjoy when I'm here, uh, all the things I thought I knew about New York are not true, except for the traffic. The, tra the traffic's true. The traffic is true. <laughs> it is bumper to bumper everywhere all the time. Yeah. Uh, constantly. But people are friendly. Service is good. Um, it's it's really it's about as expensive as you, I'm from Miami originally. So, uh, you know, things are about as costly as they are in any major city. It isn't, like, special. Mm -hmm. Um but, yeah, I always enjoy it when I come here. But Florida is all about where you go. Florida is more than one thing. People think Florida is all the beach. Yeah, I recently um, took a short trip to Florida, like a long weekend. The thing is with doing this, I have to be here every Tuesday and Thursday and record, which, you know, I'm certainly not complaining about. But I did a couple days in Tampa. Yeah. And then I did a couple days in, like, Boca Raton, Delray Beach. Different place. Boca Raton and Delray Beach I love. Yeah. It, it almost feels like New York. It is. All yeah. the East Coasters come to the East Coast of Florida, all the Midwesterners, Ohio, Michigan, Indiana. No, that's all west coast of Florida. Yeah. Um, actually, that part of Tampa and stuff like that, if you go south into Bradenton, Sarasota, there's like Mennonite and Quaker communities on the east coast come down from Pennsylvania and stuff like that, which is a real trip. And uh, In Florida with those yeah, clothes. That's in exactly Florida. what I was thinking. In Florida. Yeah, but, in but Miami is extreme heat. But there's Hasidic Jews in Miami. Yep. With the you know with the big hats and the black wool coats and all that, not God. where I'd want to live if I have to wear that. Yeah, that's hot. Yeah, that's a de certain dedication to God right there, just yeah. to wear that in Miami. But uh, yeah, but Boca Raton and, and, and Palm Beach, all that's beautiful. I loved it. It was great. Beautiful. Um, well, hey, I appreciate you coming in. Thank this you. This has been awesome. I'm I'm glad you brought it up to me that we we could do this. Yeah. And uh, we're gonna have a few shows, you know, without Jack, but Jack will be back soon. 
And uh, thanks for checking these out. I'm, I'm enjoying doing these uh, live streams on YouTube. Yeah, you did a great job. Not man. live streams. We're putting them up. Like, have a happy vacation, Jack. Enjoy time with your family. Yes, sir. been listening to soft rep radio new episodes up every wednesday and friday for all of the great content from our veteran journalists join us and become a team room member today at softrep.com follow the show on instagram and twitter at soft rep radio and be sure to also check out the power of thought podcast hosted by hurricane group ceo and navy seal sniper instructor brandon webb